In 2017, the Asian Pacific Islanders Caucus at Union Theological Seminary created this particular liturgy to be enacted at the beginning of their worship services, commissioning services, and other public gatherings. Reimagining the genealogical account found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, 16, they created their own genealogy. Rooting themselves in the people and saints that have gone before them, this ritual was a witness to the continuing struggle for justice, as well as the passing and receiving of the baton that had been relayed from generation to generation. Their work of justice begins not with them, but with those who have walked the path before them. This liturgy does not trace a biological ancestry. Rather, it is shaped by socio historical and political realities. Knitting an alternate kinship structure, the litany inserts and imagines a net of connections not constrained by time, space, location, or even DNA. Weaving together the names of Asian Pacific Islanders, activists, faculty, alums, and students into a radical kinship network, they name the political history and locate themselves in this ongoing narrative of justice work of Pacific, Asian Pacific Islanders. So I want to read you an excerpt from this litany. Vietnamese and Cambodian refugees. The parents of Thich Nhat Hanh, and Korean comfort women, the mothers of Roy Sano, and Larry Itliong and Meryl Wu, the parents of Vincent Chin, and so forth until Fred Korematsu, the father of Kosuke Koyama, and Grace Lee Boggs, the mother of Yuri Mineo Karagiri, and Mineo, the father of Yuri. Kochiyama, and so on. They weave a radical kinship ancestry. This morning we read a story from the Gospel of Matthew, and this gospel begins with the genealogy of Jesus, and for 16 verses, it meticulously records 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus. This is not the most exciting of readings as you begin your Bible study, but I encourage you to take a look at it. In this account, the writer of Matthew traces Jesus' ancestry to King David as a way to claim Jesus as a long awaited Messiah in the royal lineage, as well as to Abraham to indicate that he is an Israelite. By doing so, they recall the promises God made to Abraham and to David. And as the gospel is written in the shadow of the Roman Empire, it both mirrors and contests the imperial realities of that empire. This genealogy of Jesus traces authority through God's just purposes, unlike the genealogy of the emperor, which traces the authority through wealth, power, and elite status. In other words, His power comes not from Rome, but from God. 
It is in this context I turn to our gospel lesson today. This story is a well-known one about Jesus' first foray into his ministry. Baptized by John the Baptist in chapter three, in the early part of chapter four, Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. After the wilderness, he begins to assemble his team of disciples. And walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus sees two brothers, Simon and Andrew, casting a net into the sea. And he commands, come and follow me, and I will teach you to fish for people. And these two brothers leave their nets immediately and follow him. Then walking farther along, he comes across two sons of Zebedee, James and John, also fishermen, mending their nets with their father. Jesus calls them, and they too leave their boat and their father immediately and follow him. These four men show no hesitation at Jesus' command. They follow him immediately, not like the man who Jesus later calls in chapter 8, verse 21. This man asked to go bury his father first before following him, to which Jesus responds, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This story of Carpenter calling the fishermen inspired many songs, sermons, groups, bumper stickers, Sunday school, vacation Bible school curriculum. It speaks to one's desire to follow their higher calling, to discipleship, to work for a greater purpose, for God's kingdom. And isn't this what we're all called to do? Should we not all be inspired by their willingness to forsake all to follow Jesus, even unto death at the cross? Isn't this what discipleship means? But before we jump out of the boat too quickly in favor of this interpretation, let us linger in the boat a little longer. You see, all stories reveal as well as conceal. What is said and not said are both part of the same story. Who is absent is equally as important as who is present. And here I'm interested in what is concealed and what is not said. In this call story, I am really taken with this quick response of these four fishermen. Without stopping to ponder about the implications of their actions, they get up and leave everything to follow Jesus. This story conceals any concerns they might have about their familial responsibilities. At least if they had, the storyteller does not capture them. As if burnt out by the interminable fishing routine, they spring into action almost impulsively at a glimpse of freedom from their lab daily labor. And the readers are left wondering, who will support their families if they no longer brought in the income from fishing? We know that Simon, also known as Peter, is married and probably has children, because later in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 8, verse 14, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. So what will happen to Peter's family? 
And what about James and John? Fishing is their family business. Jesus finds them mending their nets with their father and calls them to follow, and they do. Do you ever wonder what the father might have been thinking and feeling? Did he have any say in whether they can go? The story is silent on this. What we do know is that James and John leave their father to, to mend the net alone. How will their father continue to work the business without the strength and skills of his two young sons? Who will care for their family? Whatever happened to the commandment to honor your father and your mother? Now, a point could be made that Jesus was making a political gesture by calling these fishermen. At the time of the gospel Matthew was written, fish that were caught and distributed were taxed, thus subject to Roman imperial control. So abandoning fishing can be seen as a way to resist participating in the Roman imperial economy, at least symbolically. And perhaps that is why he also called the tax collector, Matthew, as his disciple later in the gospel. These acts, political or spiritual, have intended and unintended consequences, and I want to turn our attention to these consequences. The act of leaving everything and the absence of any thoughtful deliberations create for me a particular ethical dilemma, a dilemma between duty and call, when being faithful to call means abdicating your duty and responsibility. The readers of the stories are captivated by both the authority of Jesus, who says, come and follow me, and the faithfulness of the disciples to do just that. But beneath this story lurks another story that quietly questions the propriety or even irresponsibility of their actions. So which story do we focus on? Should they stay or should they go? This tension between duty and call is not foreign to us, is it? How many of us wrestle with taking a much desired opportunity that will take us away from familial responsibilities? How many of us are in that sandwich generation with duty to care for our aging and ailing parents as well as our children, at times failing at both, and in addition, trying to figure out where our profession and career fit in. How many of us stay in a tradition that no longer serves us, but feel duty-bound to stay and try to make it work? What we're seeing in the United Methodist Church in splitting over the full inclusion of LGBTIQ persons is one such example. And I wonder too, those of you royal watchers out here, whether this is a tension playing out for Harry and Meghan as they struggle with duty and being faithful to who they want to be as a couple and as a family. These are real struggles facing many of us. So how do we negotiate all this? I want to propose engaging another ancient tradition and practice to help us with this negotiation. While Matthew's gospel leans 
in favor of the call at the expense of the duty. I want to counterbalance this by reading this text from the perspective of Confucian virtue of filial piety. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not pro proposing an uncritical acceptance of Confucianism, which has contributed to gender and class oppressions for centuries in East Asian countries where Confucianism took hold. It was built on elaborate systems of hierarchical relationships. Confucian philosophy structured inequality into the system, not only as natural, but essential for peace and harmony. Of five social relationships, ruler to subject, parent to child, husband to wife, elder sibling to younger sibling, and friend to friend. With the exception of the last category, these relationships are strictly based on hierarchy. And in particular for women, as a child, she has to obey her father, then obey her husband after she marries, and as a widow, obey her adult sons. Women have a life of obedience. This quite doesn't sit well with me. Growing up as Korean immigrant in the US, I had the space to resist and rebel, rebel against these oppressive patrilineal practices and expectations. But I also know that it's like the air we breathe and the water we swim in. It is ever-present in our interactions, relationships, and expectations. So it is with caution that I engage Confucian virtue of filial piety. Filial piety is central to how Confucian societies think and create human relationships. It is one of the most elemental of virtues. Motivated by a deep sense of gratitude for the care I received from my parents, it is my duty to pay the care debt to my parents. The practice of filial piety consists of obedience, care, service, and respect of one's parents while they're alive, and proper burial, mourning, rem remembrance ritual after they're dead. So James and John, abandoning his father, would amount to an act of filial disobedience and from Confucian perspective, they cannot be a good disciple if they cannot be a good son. Everything flows from filial piety. Because family was a core institution of the Confucian social order, it formed the basic economic, political, social, and religious unit. Filial piety moves from the home to the state, from obedience to one's parents, to responsible citizenship. Those who do not respect their parents cannot respect others. Without filial piety, we cannot have the propriety, loyalty, discipline, faithfulness, and bravery, which are important qualities of an honorable citizen to function in society. Understood in this light, James and John having done an act of filial disobedience, could not be loyal, faithful, and brave disciple of Jesus. It makes me wonder if this is why they all abandoned Jesus too, 
at the time of his greatest need at the cross. Having lived my life in these hybrid spaces in between the US and South Korea, between Confucianism and Christianity, between filial obedience and filial disobedience, yes, you may be surprised to hear I had a lot of disobediences too. I have come to appreciate filial piety, albeit in my own way. So I want to mend filial piety into the net of the dilemma I posed earlier, the dilemma between duty and call. I have come to realize that duty of filial piety is not just a duty, it is a call. It is what we are called to do and to be. When my parents came to live with me and my partner after my mother's Alzheimer's diagnosis, caring for them, and particularly caring for my mother, was not simply doing my duty as a good filial daughter. No, it was my calling for that time. In that season of my life, my call was to care for my mother. My aunts and uncles constantly re remarked that I was a dutiful daughter and how my partner Kathy consistently showed up in all the caring responsibilities. But I could not have done the endlessly difficult and emotionally painful work of caring for my mother if I hadn't understood it as my calling for that time. And this calling of mine was imposed on and shared by my partner without his support. This work would have not only been lonely, but perhaps impossible. I now see it as a season of deep caring, and, and having heard Jesus call, come follow me, I was faithfully following the call as I was dutifully practicing filial piety. Today, we celebrate the season of Lunar New Year. It is the year of the rat. I am delighted because it is my year. I wanted to raise my hand earlier and say, yes, I, I'm born in the year of the rat. And one of the Korean practices for Lunar New Year is to remember and honor our parents. Some perform ritual of ancestor veneration by offering food and paying respects. Others have a prayer service. Others visit the cemetery and pay respects to the ancestors at the gravesite. And still others visit their parents' homes to gather and to eat and spend the holiday renewing the bond. And I want to recognize that more often than not, parent-child relationships can be fraught and painful. Abandonment, neglect, and abuse mark and destroy familial bonds. And some have come to choose a family of their own apart from their biological ones. Queer families, blended families, house ballroom communities, chosen and adopted families are all part of the many ways we have created a familial structure. Not only because structure supports us, but it gives us our identity. We are who we are because of whom we are in relation to. Like the Asian Pacific Islander Caucus at Union, creating the litany to locate and identify themselves in their alternate kinship network.
So as I conclude this reflection, I want to leave you with the following considerations. One, as you discern between two seemingly conflicting calls, listen to the unheard, quiet, and concealed stories. Two, remember that a calling is lifelong, but the manifestation of that call is time-bound. Your call may look different at different times of your life. Three, <clears throat> warning. We should be careful not to use calling as a way to avoid our duty. Conversely, duty should not be used as a way to avoid following our call. Four, reflect on and seek out your ancestral lineage. They may be biological or spiritual. They may be given or chosen. Where do you see filial piety at work? How might you practice filial piety? And five, as a church, reflect and seek out ways to create space for these explorations and wrestlings. In the coming days and months, I invite you to reflect upon your duties and seek how they might be manifestations of your deeper call. And may God grant us the wisdom and courage to mend the net of filial piety as we hear God's command, come follow me in authenticity and in love. Amen. <laughs>